This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Sometimes the greatest lessons of Christmas, of a Savior coming to the world, lessons that should really bring us joy because the Lord has come, are found when we pause. And pay attention to those pauses and meditate on what we are being told, what we're being taught in Scripture. Matthew chapter 1 is not just an endless line of genealogy. Now, I'm going to teach a lesson this morning that, in all honesty, is not original to me. I, uh, in complete honesty, I think I'm incapable of, of original thought. Uh, but I certainly can critique someone else's, right? So, uh, so uh, I remember in high school, I first heard this as a message preached by a pastor out of Texas named Clyde Box. Clyde Box preached, uh, he preached around the country, and, I, and then I heard him again in college as he preached this. And then uh, my sister, who writes my sermons for me um, and lessons, just kidding, uh, my sister Courtney Dalvin up in Indiana, uh, she, uh, she took this lesson and she really, she started formulating it and she did it for a girls Bible study in her Christian school there and, and then I took it back and I uh, started working with it and made it into a lesson and, and every Christmas I come to this, uh, this lesson and it's a blessing to me and I hope that it'll be a blessing to you as we go through the genealogy and what we're going to do is we're going to pause at certain places in it, and we're going to look and see what we're being told in this genealogy. And so I trust this will be a blessing. And maybe you've heard this, uh, this, uh, this approach to the genealogy before, uh, and, uh, but I hope it'll be a blessing to you. In fact, I was talking with Pastor Brown, and uh, he said, wait, I think you're preaching my message from tonight. Well, Pastor Brown is going to preach tonight, but we've, we've worked it out, and uh, I think he'll be taking it from a different perspective. But I did lay down the challenge to him, and uh, when he reads the genealogy, you're going to hear the correct pronunciations. Uh, when I read it, he, I said, you've got to read them in Hebrew, and he says, but it wasn't written in Hebrew. I said, well, then you get to do the Greek. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to read it in good old American. Uh, and uh, so we're going to read through this in a moment, and I trust that it'll be a blessing to you. Uh, but before we do that, why don't we uh, bow in prayer and uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our lesson this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless now the teaching of your word. Again, Father, I pray that it's not just opinion and it's not just something I, uh, I made up, conjured up, Lord. I pray, Father, that it is biblical truth. Father, for we look at this genealogy, Lord, and, and I don't want to uh, add in or put things or read into anything or say this is a neat subtext, Lord but I want to draw out truths from your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would help me. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time. Lord, I pray for those who are sitting at home and they're physically hurting. Father, this virus, it's painful for many. Lord, would you comfort them? Would you remind them, Lord, that you're in control, that you are the healer, and Father, I pray that they'd also know that there is a church body of believers, membership here, who are fellow believers with them, who are lifting them up in prayer, not just on a Sunday morning in a, in a service, but Father, throughout the day, throughout the week, there are people who are praying for them. I pray that they would be encouraged. And for those who are healthy, Father, I pray that you keep them healthy. 
Father, I pray that we would be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Father, there's a lot of things that are going on in our world that are placed on us that are annoying. And Father, it's frustrating. But Father, for the sake of the gospel, help us to maintain our testimony. In this community, for those people who are watching, Lord, and, and participating in our church services via live stream, Lord, I pray that our testimony would go forth, that, Father, we are living by the ordinance of men, and we're obeying. And, Father, I pray, Father, that what we do would be an encouragement to each other. And ultimately, Father, I pray that it would bring you glory. Bless this lesson, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I was once a hopeless, lost diamond, concealed in the dark, in a wretched and dismal cave where no light could touch my heart. The Lord reached in and found this rough and filthy stone. From out of the immense darkness, he claimed me as his own. He set to labor immediately. His love always prevailed. The reductions made with clarity using a hammer and three nails. The cuts were not without struggle, growth, and pain, but with each came a brighter glow, a new lesson gained. After the cutting was complete, his brilliance now could shine, luminous for all to see, a radiant diamond now refined. I am far from being flawless. He's perfecting my luster still, this diamond in the rough being transformed within his will. I occasionally become tarnished. I still can find the dirt and grime, but he always finds and inspires me once again to shine. I know someday I will reflect with his pure and flawless light in the radiance, radiance and presence of Jesus, the illuminator of my life. This morning we look at this lineage of Christ in Matthew and what we're going to see is a messy humanity with representation of all its faults and all its failures, its perverseness and its pride, its sin and its sorrow. But it is this very lineage that produced our hope, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to point out five diamonds. Diamonds in the rough, if you will, that needed, the, needed God to come in and really chip away at the, the ugliness. And you're going to see a lot of ugly this morning. But he chips away at it so that they glimmer and shine. And when we begin to take a look and pause and look at these diamonds and look at their stories and consider their meaning, I think we can say, as the poet I, poem I just read, that in the radiance and presence of Jesus, these diamonds are going to shine. So let's look at Matthew chapter 1. And please forgive me as I labor through some words here. But we're going to read verses 1 through 17. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Phares of Zerah and Tamar, and Phares begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram. And Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Naasan, and Naasan begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rechab, and Boaz of, begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king, 
And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Roboam, and Roboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat Josaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias, and Ozias begat Joatham, and Joatham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias. And Ezekias begat Manasseh, and Manasseh begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Silithiel, and Silithiel begat Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begat Abiad, and Abiad begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor. And Azor begat Sadoc, and Sadoc begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliad. And Eliad begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathen, and Mathen begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations. And from David until the carrying away of Bab- to, into Babylon are fourteen generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are fourteen generations. Now, what I just did was I just read it without the pauses. Now, let me do you a favor, and I'm going to point out five diamonds real quick, and then we're going to go through each one. As we look at Matthew chapter 1, the first one I want to point out to you very quickly in this line of Christ, and you need an eye chart. Now, let me just say, Pastor Brown mentioned that if you were to go to the website, you would find a handout for tonight. I looked at that handout for tonight. If you were to go to the website right now, you would find a handout for this lesson. All right, and so uh, uh, you can see that he has those, uh, those names all lined out for you, and you'll see them. But let's point out just a couple here as we begin. In verse 3 is the first one. Judas begat Pharaoh's and Zerah of Tamar. Tamar. If you have a Bible, you don't mind writing in it. Uh, could you underline or highlight or however you like, just circle that name Tamar. We move along and we go down now to verse, uh, we're going to look at verse 5. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rechab. Rechab. Now, again, if you'll see our next name, if you would, highlight it, however you choose to, the name Rechab. Or if we wanted to use the name we see in Joshua, Rahab. Rahab. And then in that same verse, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. There's the next one, Ruth. So, we, so far, we have Tamar. Rahab and Ruth. Now, this one is a little more uh, a tricky one here in verse 6. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her, and we don't even have a name, of her that had been the wife of Urias. In fact, if you have a King James Bible and you're reading it, and your, your Bible does the italicized pieces, you'll see that even that word that had been the wife of Urias is in italics. This was added for clarity and for understanding. But we know the person, if you want, just underline that, that italicized part that had been the wife of Urias, because we will find she has a name. Her name is Bathsheba. So far, we have Tamar. We have Rahab, we have Ruth, we have Bathsheba. And then we go all the way down to verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary, of whom was born Jesus. And again, if you would, highlight that name, Mary. What I've just pointed out to you in the genealogy of Christ here is the fact that there are five ladies, women, that are mentioned 
And they're the only five women that are mentioned in the genealogy. Now, as you look at something like that and you study, you might begin to think, what is the significance of this? And as I look at it, I think it is significant. There's only five men, women mentioned. Four of them are Gentiles. What do I mean by that? They were non-Jew. They were an outsider. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Mary is the only one. We have nothing written in the Bible that's negative about her. And we will see some things that are negative about these other. Even Ruth, we find nothing that she personally did, but she was a Moabite. She was an outsider. Each, though, has a history. Each looked down on by society. They produced a line that if we were to look at this, this is not one you as a child or as a member of this family would look at and say, wow, look at my ancestors. They produced a line that on the surface looks embarrassing. Yet in reality, they're a group of ladies that were truly diamonds in the rough. When diamonds are extracted from mines, they don't look very pretty. An expert with many years of training and experience has to cut it and polish it so that it looks beautiful and is valuable, so that one would wear it in jewelry. But before that happens, a diamond, if you've ever seen a diamond that is in the rough, it looks like a lump of salt. Of course, after all this cutting, the diamond is smaller, so basically the diamond cutter is removing all the baggage that's around it. Thus, when someone calls a person a diamond in the rough, it means that at first appearance, they seem to be rather ordinary or common. But, and this is much more important, it also means that they recognize that something very valuable and precious that will take a lot of work to bring it out, but it's lying beneath the surface. So, let's take a look at these. And our first one, we're going to look at, our first diamond this morning, is we are going to look at Tamar. Tamar. In verse 3 again, Judas begat Phares and Zerah of Tamar. Tamar. We find her story in Genesis chapter 38. Now, keeping in mind, I know who's listening to us. We're not going to read the story, okay? And I trust that for sake of time, you'll, you'll be content with my synopsis of this story. But we find her story in Genesis chapter 38. Her name means palm tree. We know nothing about her past other than that she was a Canaanite, a heathen, and therefore she was to be shunned. She married, though, into the family of Jacob. She married Judah's son, so Jacob's grandson, Ur, E-R, Ur. She marries him, but Ur, we don't know why Ur passes away, but he dies. And uh, he did something wicked enough Again, we don't know what, for God to slay him, as we read in Genesis 38. Because there are no sins, we find out, that God cannot see. And there are sins he alone can see. Whatever it was that Ur did, it caused the wrath of God to come upon him, and he died. Tamar was not widowed long. She was given by Judah, the second son, Onan. And in the Hebrew law, this was keeping in, in with this Hebrew law of a leveret marriage to raise up seed to, her, to the deceased brother. But Onan, he knew that any child he were to have would not be considered his own. It would not be his, his own blood uh, or his own, his own name. It would be his brother's name. So he did 
something wicked. The Bible does tell us what he did. But God kills him as well. Well, number three son comes along. His name is Shelah. And he was going, should have been, according to the law, he should have been the third husband to Tamar. Judah, the father, even promises him this. He says, when Shelah comes of age, so you can tell that now, now poor Tamar has to wait. And he says, when Shelah comes of age, he is going to, you'll, you'll marry him. But when that happens, Judah breaks his promise. He breaks his promise. Perhaps Judah fears the same thing is going to happen to his third son. Of course, his first two sons have been killed. He now has this third son, and he doesn't give him to Tamar to get married. Interesting thing the Bible says, though, about Tamar. We find that she was determined to preserve the family name. And she knew she was supposed to marry uh, Sheila, but she goes about it under her own way. She doesn't marry the son. She sets her eyes on Judah, the father, whose wife has passed away at this point. And she does it by laying a trap for him. After the death of his wife, Shua, Judah, he's stricken in grief. He gets over his grief. He goes to shear his sheep. And Tamar overhears him talking about his grief. She dresses up as a harlot. And she goes and she seduces her own father-in-law. Judah bargains for her. With favors, and she gets, and she, he says, she says, well, what are you going to do if, uh, if I'm going to perform this? And he says, I'll give you a, a goat from the herd. And she says, okay, I need, you, I need some collateral that's, that'll keep your promise. So he takes off his signet, maybe a ring or something that signified it was his signature. And it, she said, he, she, he takes that, he takes some bracelets off his hand, he gives, takes his staff, and he says, here, take these things. And she lays a trap for her own father, father-in-law. And when Judah finds out down the road that she had seduced him, and now she's expecting a child, he's ready to kill her. But someone says, well, and he says, bring her forward. We're going to kill her because she's done this sin. She's committed this fornication. And he says to her, you need to tell us who the father is. And she says... It's the guy that I have this staff, these bracelets, and this signet. And you know what Judah does? He realizes, he says, she has been more righteous than I. And he even says her motives were noble. This is a messed up story. It's a strange story. But guess what? She does have children. She doesn't just have one, she has twins. Pharez... And Zerah. And it's actually through this incestuous relationship that a son is born named Pharez, and Judah and Tamar become ancestors of Jesus. Only by God's grace could these two be in the messianic line. Judah, a Jew, Tamar, a Gentile foreshadow the fact that both Jews and Gentiles were to share the blessings of the gospel. But here's the lesson we learn from this. We come to Christ because of our sin. We come to Christ because of our sin. The gross immoral sin of this 
couple here of Judah and Tamar is just an example of the sin that humans are capable of. It illustrates man's desperate need for a Savior. Romans 3.23, you've heard it before. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64, 6 says it like this, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our, unrighteousness, or all our righteousness is as filthy rags. In Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In Romans 3, 10, There is none righteous, no, not one. So before we sit back and we say, Wow, that is a disgusting, horrible story of Judah and Tamar, realize, but for the grace of God, there go I. There is no spark of divinity. There is no basically good in us. We have no intrinsic value. This diamond is not beautiful at first. It may not have the best clarity or color or cut, but it is nonetheless a valuable gem to know that we have to have a Savior because we have sin in our lives. And Tamar, this story in the genealogy of Christ shows us we come to Christ because of sin. I would rather have the precious diamond of knowing I am a sinner in need of a Savior than to have the fool's gold of believing in my own self-righteousness. We come to Christ because of sin. So as I glance across the list of names in Matthew 1, my attention is drawn to a spark, a glimmer of hope, and I realize that it is a diamond in the rough ready to be drawn out. And I see that diamond as the truth that as we make our way to Jesus Christ, we must do so in the reality that we come to him in our sin. Though that is a priceless diamond indeed, we're not left in our sins. But rather we see another diamond just a few generations later. Let's look down at verse 5. And we see now Rahab. Rahab, you'll see it there in the Greek as Rahab, but it is Rahab there in Joshua as another pronunciation of it. And uh, since Rahab is another pronunciation that is easier, I'm going to use that one. And so we're going to go with Rahab. We find her story in Joshua chapter 2. In Joshua chapter 2, she too was another Canaanite. Of course, she lived in the city of Jericho. Her name is a derivative of the Egyptian god Ra and means insolent, fierceness, overbearing, and bold. Rahab. Her parents, her brothers, her sisters, they were alive at the time because she mentions them. And Joshua sent out spies. Uh, At the time, we don't know the names right away. We get those a little bit later. But we find out that they send out these spies. And uh, one, the wife of Salmon, the son of Nason, a prince of Judah, in 1 Chronicles 2.10, maybe was one of the two spies she sheltered. Because we know that she, whatever happened here, she changes her lifestyle, and she does get married to one of the Israelites. She was the mother of Boaz. We're going to talk about Boaz, who married Ruth. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But she marries this man, Salmon. From the line of Judah. Rahab, one time a heathen harlot in Jericho, marries into a leading family of Judah and becomes in the ancestry of Christ. 
This is Rahab in the Bible, the one you've probably read about, the one where we wonder why these two spies decided to go there, to this, this place of, uh, of fornication in her house. But that's where they ended up. And she hides them. And we see a tremendous act of faith. In fact, as I look at the story of Rahab, there's six S's of Rahab that I'd like to point out. One was her sin. She was, if we could call it, a moral leper. One, one who was shunned, but her home was easily accessible by many men. We don't know her story of repentance, but we do know it happened. But we see that as we begin the story in Joshua, we see that she definitely had a lifestyle that we should not be proud of. Not only did she have sin... She had a scheme. As soon as the way was clear, under the cover of night, she let the spies down from the window in a wall, and knowing the country, she guided the spies in the best way to escape. And notice what she said in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. She apparently understood about God what, what he could, was capable of because she said, hey, we're afraid of this God, but what did she do to the people that, or to the ones that were looking for the spies? She lied to them. She was a liar. And she had no problem, it seems, to do that. But she did make great sacrifice. Courage to risk her own self to protect the spies. She betrayed her own country and was willing to sacrifice her own life in a cause she knew to be of God. She had heard those stories, those amazing stories of the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness, of going through the Red Sea. She had heard that and she said, the fear of you is on us all. In fact, she says, the heart of this city, the, men of, the heart of the men of this city is melting out of fear. We see her sin, we see her scheme, we see her sacrifice, we see her sign. By faith, Rahab placed a scarlet rope outside her window so that Joshua and his men would see it and she and her family would be spared. It was a sign of faith. And we see... In Joshua chapter 6, verse 17 through 25, her salvation, just as Rahab was brought out of the accursed city of Jericho and from her own sin, she is an illustration of another miracle of divine grace as God brings us out of the world and saves us. And then we see her status. Did you know Rahab is mentioned three times in the New Testament? In Matthew 1 verse 5, here we see she's in the lineage of Christ. In James verses five, in chapter 5 verse 25, we see that Rahab's acts were a demonstration of her faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 31, she is actually mentioned in that group of men and women, actually one of only two women mentioned in that, uh, in that hall of faith because of her faith. She's the only woman besides Sarah who is designated as an example of faith. By faith, the harlot, still gives her that moniker, Rahab, perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace, is what it says in Hebrews. By faith. So from her, the six S's of Rahab, we see she begins with this sin. She has a scheme, but she sacrifices through faith. She has this sign, her salvation, but then her status is elevated. We see a, a diamond here of repentance. But the lesson we learn from Rahab is this. We're reminded that Rahab's change of heart, that his blood can make even the vilest clean. 
Rahab was important to God. This harlot will enter heaven before the self-righteous ever will. And we can see a deep concern for the salvation of others that Rahab wanted her family spared as well. But most importantly, we see, if Tamar tells us we come to Christ because of sin, we see here that we come to Christ by faith. Rahab had faith. Again, praised in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, for her faith. As an illustration of the faith we must also have when coming to Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith. Remember the verse mentioned a few minutes ago, Romans 3.23, for all the sin and come short of the glory of God. Well, the verse preceding it says that we cannot be justified by good works, but rather we are justified by the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. Our first diamond is that we come to Christ because of our sin, but in our sin we are helpless. Therefore, we see another diamond brilliant with hope, and that is that we come to Christ by faith. It may be small, but in our humanity, we realize that there is one more righteous that we could ever hope, and we put our trust in him. And in our poor estate, he reaches down, and he gives us grace. And that's the next diamond that we see in the lineage of Christ. Our third diamond... Look at, again, at verse 5. We read that Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Rahab, or Boaz, begat Obed of Ruth. Now, we find her story in the book of the Bible that is named for her, the book of Ruth. She was a Moabite, descendants of the, another horrible relationship between Lot and his daughter. That's the Moabites. Her name means friend or companion. Remember what she had said to her bitter mother-in-law in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 17? Entreat me not to leave thee, or return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. Ruth, her name means friend, companion. She's not going to leave you. And she, she demonstrated that with her mother-in-law, Naomi. We see a five-fold profile of youth. She was a young widow. Her husband, or her, her father-in-law, Elimelech and Naomi, her mother-in-law, had two sons, Malon and Kilion. They had, left for Bethlehem, they had left from Bethlehem because of a famine, and they had gone to Moab, an idolatrous nation. This is the time of the judges. Malon is who married Ruth. Kilion married Orpah. After ten years, they died, and they had no children. Knowing Ruth's honest nature, it is possible that she had probably heard of the, the God of the Israelites from her husband or her father and mother-in-law. And she had probably received it because we're going to see what she does as she returns with Naomi. Now, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, they were living in poverty. But Ruth never complains about this. She doesn't get bitter like Naomi, her mother-in-law, does. We see that she's a young widow, doesn't have much of a future. But we also see she's a faithful daughter-in-law. Three women, they found consolation with each other. 
all three of their husbands had died. But Naomi had no grandchildren in Moab, so she decides to return to her country, hoping things would be better there, hoping she'd find help. So all three set out, Orpah, Ruth, and Naomi. But Naomi encourages the daughter-in-laws to return. She says, look, you don't want to come with me. You're young. You can marry again. Go live your life. I'll return by myself. She re- encouraged them to return, marry, have their own families. And guess what? Orpah does. Orpah says, thanks, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm going to go back. But Ruth doesn't. Ruth stays with Naomi. It's possible Naomi is more than twice the, two, twice the age of Ruth. And she says to Ruth, you can't go back. She, in fact, she three times, she says, Ruth, go back. But Ruth remains loyal. She was a faithful daughter-in-law to her mother, mother-in-law. She was a young widow, but she was a faithful daughter-in-law. But we find out she's a determined convert. We don't know when she turned from idolatry in Moab. Perhaps, again, it was while her husband was alive. She must have seen that Naomi's God was totally different than the lifeless deity she had worshipped. With God in her heart, she longed to live with those whose God is the Lord. Remember what I said? She said, your God's going to be my God. That's a conversion that she has. She's going to accept the God of Israel. With God in heart, she longs to live with those whose God is the Lord. The decision to follow Jehovah and identify herself with his people brought her a rich reward. She, too, becomes... Into the, comes into the law in the ancestry of Jesus. Not only, though, was she a young widow, a faithful daughter-in-law, a determined convert, she had humility about her. She was a humble gleaner. Naomi and Ruth, they returned to Bethlehem. Again, Naomi had, only, Naomi had only been gone 10 years. Ruth, not ashamed of the low order of work, as she took her place as a gleaner with the poor and the outcasts. If you don't know anything about gleaning, what I'm mentioning is what would happen is as they would harvest the wheat or whatever they were, anything that dropped down, the the poor and outcasts could come into the field and they could pick that up. And that would be their sustenance. She wasn't above that life. But she was also, she was industrious. She wasn't idle. She went to glean in a field. Little did she know that she would someday marry the master of the field. Boaz, the owner, he sees her, is interested in her. The Bible says she was fair. She was beautiful. He sees her. He sees her personality. He sees her industry. He learns of her sacrifice for Naomi and commands that the reapers drop extra wheat and things for her to give her an extra opportunity to glean even more. She was a humble gleaner, but we find eventually she becomes an honored mother. It turns out that Boaz is one of Naomi's nearest relatives and one of few remaining kinsmen of her husband's family. Remember when Naomi said to Ruth, go back and marry someone else. To keep that family line, that name, Ruth would have to marry a kinsman to her husband. It turns out Boaz is that guy. So by law, he can become Ruth's wife. 
by law there was no uh, uh, there was no brother brother in law for her, so the nearest kin would be called on. Boaz was not actually this person, but this person didn't want to do it, and so Boaz it allows for him to step in and become the next next kinsman. A rags to riches story, poverty to plenty. Boaz announced at the gates before ten men that he was going to marry Ruth, and he does it. And they had a son named Obed. Son's name was expressive of Ruth's life. It, was, it means, Obed means a servant who worships. From Ruth's line came Christ, fitting that Christ would have both Jew and Gentile blood in his veins. And the lesson we learn is this. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 10, Ruth bows before Boaz and asks, Why have I found grace? In your eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, a stranger. And that is the same question we have been asking our Savior from the day he stretched out his arms on the cross and died for us. Why have we found grace in your eyes? So we learn from Ruth that we come to Christ by grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor, getting something we do not deserve. Ruth got what she did not deserve. She got redemption. Boaz gave what he did not owe. He gave her redemption. We have received from Christ what he did, we, he did not owe to us. Redemption. A very gracious act. Again, let me remind you of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Or as Ephesians 1, 6 so eloquently puts it, We praise the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. The old hymn says it like this. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sins and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. Where th there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Marvelous grace, infinite grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. I know our time is quickly going, but allow me to put another beautiful diamond of the, in the lineage of our Lord before you. We first have seen Tamar, the diamond reflecting the truth that we come to Christ by sin. And then we see Rahab, the diamond of faith. There is hope even in our sin. Then we look to Ruth, showing us the diamond of God's grace. And now we consider another diamond. Again, it may not have the luster and shine of grace, but it's priceless nonetheless. And it's worthy of our consideration. And we see it in verse 6 of Matthew. And Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. We are about to embark on one of the saddest stories in the Bible. It's, an in it's interesting that in the Matthew lineage, her name is not given. But we know this woman to be Bathsheba. And we find the sad story of Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12. In, in 2 Samuel eleven fifteen, 15, David writes a letter to his commander on the front line, Joab. In the letter, he commands Joab to put Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, at the forefront of the hottest battle and retire, the Bible says, or retreat from him. Why? So that Uriah would be smitten and die. What a commander. I remember once on my first, uh, uh, my first in-call ever made with a commanding officer, I was an ensign, 
I was at Great Lakes Recruit Training Command, and I uh, was going to see the captain who had, was a Mustang. He had been in, I think he ended up retiring about that year, a year later, at 36 years of service. And I had all about 36 minutes of service. Uh, and so, and uh, found out, uh, not important to the story, but found out he was, he was a, a Latter-day Saints Mormon. And, uh, but he began to ask me, he says, who is the greatest leader in the Bible? And he had, he had somewhere where he was going with it. And I just thought for a moment, and I said, just blurted out, I said, Joshua. And I, and I kind of, you know, took him off guard because that was not the answer he wanted me to say. He was going to get to Joshua. He wanted me to say David. And I, he says, not David. And I said, well, no, David's a good one. And he says, no, he's not. <laughs> he, said, he said he was horrible, dereliction of duty. Uh, and he starts listing off all of these uh, infractions and violations of the UCMJ that David had committed. And I said, no, I, I agree. I said, but the Bible does say he was a man after God's own heart. And so who am I to argue with that? Uh, and so, uh, but uh, uh, that, was, that was my first uh, in call. That's how it went. But here we see David. He's writing this letter, and he puts it into the hand of Uriah, the, the husband of Bathsheba. And, he said, and the letter says to, to Joab, his general, he says, hey, I want you to put Uriah at the front line so he can die. What did Uriah do to receive a death sentence like this? By the way, Uriah, he delivers the letter. He doesn't read it, at least to our knowledge. He doesn't open it. Maybe he did. I think it would be more spectacular if he did. He does what he's told. He delivers the letter with its fatal order to Joab. The sad story, though, begins with this phrase. At the time when the kings go forth to battle, David tarried still at Jerusalem. David was not where he was supposed to be with his men. Now, I, I find it interesting that the Bible says there's a time when kings go forth to battle. You know, that's a time of year when, hey, when we're going to get our fighting on, we're going to do it at this time. All right? And so, uh, so there was a place where David was supposed to be. Had he kept his entire army home, probably would have been okay. But not this. He, he sends his troops out. And he, he puts them out, but David stays back at Jerusalem. David had been ruling Israel. It's still very early in his kingdom. He's been only about 12 years on the throne. And while he was not where he should be, David sees a woman bathing. And so he does what he thinks he could do as a king. He says, I want her. Bring her to me. You can read the rest of the story in 2 Samuel chapters 11, verse, 11, chapters 11 and 12. But Bathsheba ultimately is expecting a baby. And when David finds out this, so this is some time that goes by. David brings Uriah home, but Uriah refused to go to his wife. Uriah, we see, is a man of character. He'd not go to his house. In fact, he's listed as one of David's mighty men in other passages. He would not go to his house while his men, as he says, how could I do this while my men are sleeping in the field? I don't know if David heard that reasoning, but it was a slap in the face to David. David tarried in Jerusalem when he should have been out in the field. This man says, I'm not even going to go home. I'm going to go sleep in the gate on the ground if my men are out in the field. So... David is furious when he finds out that Uriah doesn't obey. And that's when he sends Uriah back with a sealed letter, the death warrant. 
to have him put in the front lines where he would surely be killed. We see in this story here of lust, adultery, deceit, treachery, and murder. After morning time, after the morning time of Bathsheba for her husband, David still, I don't know if he gets it. Because you know what David does now after Bathsheba has mourned her loss of her husband who's been killed in battle? He says, hey, I want you to come. I'm going to marry you now. He takes her. She has the baby. And the baby dies within a week. Both knew, I think, at some point here that God was beginning to judge their dark sin. Much about David's repentance is read in Psalm 51 and 32. But there were natural consequences. Evil rose up against him. He was disgraced by one of his sons. He was banished from his own kingdom by another son. Revolted against by a third son. He was betrayed by his servant, forsaken by his friends, deserted by his people, and bereaved of his children. And likely Bathsheba, his wife, shared in all of this sorrow. God, though, did give them a second son, Solomon who would put Bathsheba in the line of Christ. God must have pardoned their sin. Bathsheba brought up Solomon with godly diligence. After Solomon, not much is heard of Bathsheba until Solomon becomes king. But if we look again at 2 Samuel 11, 15, we can read these words, uh, retire from him that he may be smitten and die. That was the letter. Retire from him that he be smitten and die. And die. And we learn this from the story of Bathsheba. We come to Christ by death. Someone died. Uriah had to die so that David could marry Bathsheba and thus produce a child, the second child, Solomon. What do you mean Uriah had to die? It's a bad story. It's a sad story. But God, in his sovereignty, used it. And Uriah did give his life for the ancestry of Christ. Romans 6.22 puts it precisely, For the wages of sin is death. But Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sinned into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned, we could not possibly have paid such a price. Because Jesus, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I see a lot of similarities in the way Jesus went to the cross and the way Uriah went to his death. He did what he was told, Uriah did. He was a man of character. But we see we come to Christ by death. We come to Christ because someone died. In our sin and even with our faith, we have to have God's grace and recognize that the diamond of the death of our Savior is necessary. But we will not stay in the doom and gloom of death. We're going to look at one final and we'll be done and I'll be short. Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Matthew 1.16. Of all these diamonds, this is the first Israelite. The first Israelite. Here are some interesting things about Mary. Her name means beloved. 
She lived in a humble village named Nazareth. Mary from the tribe of Judah, the line of David, became the wife of Joseph, the son of Heli. She was called blessed among women by her cousin Elizabeth. She marries Joseph, and they had four sons, James, Joses, Judas, and Simon. And other daughters, sons, made fun of Jesus and did not believe until after Christ was crucified. She is last mentioned in the upper room praying with her sons, who were now believers. Well, we don't see it necessary to worship Mary. She was a remarkable woman, worthy of our adoration. Consider the following. We do know that she had some super eminence, a high rank. She is the best known woman in the world, of beautiful character. Luke 1, 28 and 30 says, And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. Blessed art thou among women. Thou hast found favor with God. We don't even know what she looked like, but we know what she was like. For he hath regarded, she says this, For she, he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. So I am not saying we need to worship her. But I think sometimes the pendulum swings in an ultimate different way. And we do need to realize that she even acknowledged, after she had met with Gabriel, that generations will call her blessed. She was selected when the fullness of time was come. He went to a poor dwelling to get the woman who would bring the Savior into the lost world, just as prophesied centuries before. She was sanctified. She had to be holy unto the Lord, set aside to be selected for this task. She was submissive. Mary willingly yielded her body to the Lord. Her salutation when the angel left and departed, she was humble and she would, and seen her acknowledgement of Gabriel's message in Luke chapter 1 verses 46 through 55, what we call the magnificent. She, she acknowledged that she was blessed of God. She was sorrowful. She saw what happened to her son throughout his life, especially the last three, three and a half years of his life, the blasphemies. The revilings, his death. Could you imagine watching your son die as a criminal between two thieves? In fact, the Bible said, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also. At this point on the cross, when Jesus is there, he looks down and he doesn't see his brothers and sisters there with her. He only sees John. At this point, we know that his brothers and sisters were still not believers. They did not accept him as the Messiah until later. But he looks down and he sees John with his mother. And he calls on John to take care of her. She was widowed. The other siblings were not believers. She's all alone as she watched as her son died. But we often overlook Mary's response to being chosen to be the mother of our Lord. In Luke 1, we see her song of praise, and in that song, in that magnificence, she says, He that is mighty had done to me great things, and holy is his name. Look what she says, and this is very important. And his mercy is on them that fear him. What do we learn from Mary? We come to Christ through mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Regardless of who Mary had in the womb, according to the law, she was the child, that she was having a child outside the bounds of marriage. She, according to the law, was justified 
to be put to death. Yet Joseph married her anyway. He raised the child as his own and showed mercy beyond all human comprehension. And Christ also showed us mercy in giving that son to save our souls. Titus 3.5 tells us that it is not the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Because of our sin, we deserve so much worse than the beautiful diamonds of the gift of faith, God's grace, the sacrifice of death of his son. I know I've been long and I'm done, but the beautiful diamonds we have traced through in this lineage of Christ are worthy for us to consider. We see in Tamar the diamond of the truth of our sinful condition. In Rahab, we see the diamond of our faith. In Ruth, the diamond of grace. In Bathsheba, we see a diamond shrouded in the awful fact that someone had to die for us. And in Mary, the beautiful diamond of God's mercy. You see, Jesus came from such people because he came for such people. The genealogy of Christ is rough, but there are diamonds in there. Diamonds that show us of our need for a Savior, for he is truly more precious than diamonds and more costly than gold. And so now as you go through the Christmas season, and you'll hear songs, and like we watched in that video as it started, take pause. And as you look in the genealogy, I hope that you'll pause when you come to certain names. And I'm confident you're going to hear more this evening on why you should pause and realize that salvation is threaded throughout even that genealogy. So often we read Old Testament stories and we think, wow, that's a, that's a heavy story. It's an interesting story. Or that's a good story. But we should always, as I was told in one of my preaching classes in seminary, we should try to take that story and make a beeline for the cross with it and find out what does it tell us about the cross. We see in the genealogy that we can take a beeline and head straight for the cross because even in that genealogy, we see diamonds that show us of our salvation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the patience. Lord, of those that are here and for those that have been watching, Lord, I pray that you would help us to rem remember the beautiful story of our salvation. That, Father, we are sinners. Father, we must have faith. Father, in our faith, you have been gracious to us and you have shown us grace. You have shown us that grace through the fact that you sent your son to die for us. An act of mercy in our condition. Lord, I pray that we would not forget this beautiful story of salvation that we see throughout the entire Bible. This is just one chapter that it again illustrates that, that salvation for us. It's, it's throughout the pages of Scripture. Lord, I pray that you would help us not only to appreciate it, be thankful for it, but help us to share it with others. We thank you for all you do. Lord, again, I lift up those who are sick, ill, Lord, some have COVID, some don't. Some are dealing with other illnesses. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them and help them throughout this week. Lord, I lift them up. Lord, I pray that you would heal. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening.
If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.